Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So last week, I quickly told you about this first story, but I wanted to actually go into detail because it's, it's actually pretty exciting and I didn't want to give it such short shrift. And we're actually going to be spending tonight in the realm of engineering And uh, as we go on, the stories will be more about how such engineering, both physical and social, might lead to a more sustainable future, which is some pretty good news that we could all use right now, I think, (laughs) given the current situation in uh, the world, every little bit of good news is helpful. So to refresh, in a new study published in Science Advances, researchers and engineers from the University of Minnesota have electronically transformed the abundant and low-cost non-magnetic material pyrite or iron sulfide into a magnetic material. This is a first for researchers to be able to transform a completely non-magnetic material into a magnetic one. Most people knowledgeable in magnetism would probably say it was impossible to electrically transform a non-magnetic material into a magnetic one. When we looked a little deeper, however, we saw a potential route and made it happen, said Chris Lighton, the lead researcher on the study and a University of Minnesota distinguished McKnight University professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Material Sciences. Lighton and his colleagues, including Ere Idel at New York University and Laura Gagliardi, a chemist at the University of Minnesota, have been researching the properties of iron sulfide, also occasionally known as fool's gold, for more than 10 years as a possible component for solar cells. Sulfur is an abundant and cheap byproduct of petroleum refinement but they were not able to make it efficient enough for their purposes. We really went back to the iron sulfide material to try and figure out the fundamental roadblock to cheap, non-toxic solar cells, Leighton said. Meanwhile, my group was also working in the emerging field of magnetoionics, where we tried to use electrical voltages to control magnetic properties of materials for potential applications in magnetic data storage devices. At some point, we realized we should be combining these two research directions, and it paid off. Now, Leighton explains that the goal was to manipulate the magnetic properties of the material using only voltage with little electrical current in order to create an energy-efficient substance. Researchers had previously turned on and off ferromagnetism in types of magnetic materials, but it had never been able to induce magnetism or ferromagnetism in a non-magnetic material until now. And so the researchers used a technique called electrolyte gating. They took the non-magnetic pyrite and put it in a device which allowed it to contact with 
an ionic solution or electrolyte, which, as I mentioned last time, is similar, in fact, to Gatorade. They then applied a tiny amount of electricity, as little as one volt, which moved charged molecules to the interface between the two substances and induced magnetism. Now remember, one volt is very small. Think about batteries. You know, a nine volt battery is a pretty small battery still considering things. And that's a lot more power than they were putting into this system. Crucially, they were able to reverse the action by turning off the voltage. So they were able to take it and make it magnetic and then be able to have it no longer be magnetic, which is a big deal. We were pretty surprised it worked, Leighton said. By applying the voltage, we essentially pour electrons into the material. It turns out that if you get high enough concentrations of electrons, the material wants to spontaneously become ferromagnetic, which we were able to understand with theory. This has lots of potentials. Having done it with iron sulfide, we guess we can do it with other materials as well. And so the next steps are to try the process at higher temperatures and using different materials. They then hope to demonstrate the possibility for use in real devices. And so that could be a really great thing to use this cheap material in a way that's pretty easy to do using low amounts of electricity to create something that can be used in next generation electronics um, for data storage. So basically for computer memory and things like that. And so there are a whole bunch of people working on how to make next generation uh, memory for computational devices. And so it's very cool to see this kind of research being done. And again, having things that are readily available, low cost and low energy is a great way to be able to use something that is not having a huge environmental impact. Okay, this one's a little less uh, gung-ho about the environment, but I just thought it was really interesting, uh, and so I definitely wanted to talk about it. And then we'll talk some more about things that are more specifically geared towards making the uh, environment a better place. So, writing in the Proceedings of the Royal Society A, Researchers showed that there is an interaction between a component of leaves and iron and iron which causes slipperiness and suggests a path towards mitigating this reaction in railroad tracks. So a team of engineers at the University of Sheffield in England has found a reason for why fall leaves tend to cause railroad tracks in the country to become dangerously slippery. In the fall, wet leaves, well, fall onto railroad tracks and are crushed by passing trains, causing a buildup of a black layer, which turns the tracks into a veritable skating rink. The loss of traction requires slower speeds, which annoys passengers and causes freight to be late. And of course, that can have further um, implications down the road if you have late freight you might end up having something that actually uh, causes something else to potentially spoil and then you have to throw it away. So there is real um, important things that are impacted by this. 
And so in order to figure out why this was, the researchers took sycamore leaves and soaked them in water until the water turned brown and created an acidic extract. They then added iron chloride to simulate dissolved iron from train tracks. This darkened the mix, which they then applied to appeal to a pair of steel surfaces. They found that the substance adhered to the steel and caused them to lose friction. They then removed the tannins from the same sort of leaves and found that they failed to produce the blackened mixture. This suggests that it is the high level of tannins which create the substance which could lead to research on chemical applications which can break down tannins on the tracks. So that's really cool. Um, of course, one of the things they suggest first and foremost is the ability to um, just know this and so then managers of the tracks can go down the tracks and, for instance, cut down sycamore trees that are too close to the tracks or when they're repopulating uh, uh, areas or reforesting um, areas near train tracks, they can know that they should plant more plant more trees that don't have high levels of tannins in them. And then, of course, at some point, they could probably also find a way to uh, have a chemical application, but sometimes the low-tech solution is just as easy. Um, and so they can, obviously you don't want to cut down really old, beautiful trees, but you might be able to trim them on the side that is near the track to really um, slow down on the um, accumulation of leaves on the tracks. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about how something that simple can cause such havoc <laughs> to a really robust and industrialized system. It's like, oh, sorry, you tried to make this amazing uh, human uh, engineering feat and we're Mother Nature is going to foil it with some damp leaves. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And that was, of course, part of it, too, is that it was only damp leaves. So if you um, presumably you could also put canopies over the tracks, but I doubt anybody's thinking of doing that. Um, that would be costly and silly. OK, let's stick with engineering for a bit and talk about fluorescence. This is typically associated with gases and liquids, which admit visible light after they have absorbed shorter wavelengths of radiation, such as ultraviolet light. So I'm sure you've all seen rocks that glow under ultraviolet light and things like that. Um, and so they are, they have fluorescent properties, but most of the time fluorescence is something like, um, is certain dyes that have been created to use fluorescence. And so they are either in a liquid or gas state. But of course, those sorts of things are hard to work with. So a team of chemists has developed a formula which gives solid materials the same property, which could be useful for a host of applications. 
published in the journal Chem, the paper describes a material called smiles, which can be turned into a solid crystalline state with a unique bright fluorescent glow under ultraviolet light. The substance could potentially be used for solar energy harvesting, solid state lasers, bioimaging, and 3D display technologies. If something requires bright fluorescence, this could be useful. Senior co-author Amar Flood notes that gases and liquids are not easy to work with, while solids allow you to pack more fluorescent dye molecules into a smaller space so the footprint is smaller, explained Flood in an email to Gizmodo. For example, one small ice cube melts to a tablespoon of liquid water, and the same amount expands to the size of a beach ball when made into a gas. Smiles, or small molecule ionic isolation lattice, solves an important problem with fluorescent dyes. When they enter into a solid state, they get tightly packed, and this actually mutes their glow as the close proximity of the dye particles creates interference patterns. When putting dyes into solids, they couple together and stop fluorescing. They also change color in unpredictable ways, said Flood. And so in order to create smiles, Flood teamed up with Bo Larson at the University of Copenhagen. They took colored dyes and combined them with a colorless solution containing a star-shaped molecule known as a cyanostar. By adding this molecule to the solution of the dye, they were able to prevent the molecules from being too closely packed together and allowing them to maintain their fluorescent properties. This mixture basically traps the dye in a lattice-like structure to allow for the dyes to work as they are designed to. Using the SMILES material, they printed 3D objects called gyroids and doused them in ultraviolet light. The result was a bright glow. SMILES is not the first successful attempt at fluorescent materials, but it has an important difference to these other earlier substances. It is not produced after a series of trial and error efforts, but rather was developed in a systematic way. And so earlier times, you know, people were just kind of throwing whatever they could at the problem and seeing if they could make something work. But this time they've actually worked in a way that from start to finish can be explained, can be talked about, and um, it's really a breakthrough. We allow the process to become foolproof by offering design rules, Flood said. They employed the idea of hierarchical self-assembly in order to devise the regular lattices. The cyanostars were the key to the process as they are colorless, and so they produce the checkerboard lattice but play no other role other than one of isolation. So in the solid, the dyes no longer interfere with each other to turn off the fluorescence and change the color, Flood explained. In tests, SMILES was 30 times brighter than cadmium selenide quantum dots, which are the current benchmark and are currently used in medical diagnostics. Now, Flood and his colleagues will need to further explore the tolerances and mechanical properties of the material to see just how it can be used in the future. But 
having this process that can create this kind of uh, fluorescence that is uh, on demand, that is able to be reproduced using an actual process is a big deal because fluorescents are used in all sorts of devices. Um, and again, this is one of those innovations where you can really see that it can give people better ways to do things more efficiently and therefore with less impact. And so, yeah, and of course, it's part of this whole uh, new branch of creating electronics, which are kind of uh, almost bespoke. <laughs> and so you can create all of these new things that are going into making technologies faster, better, easier to use and more environmentally friendly. And so um, in other pink sorry, another ink slash printing advances, <laughs> researchers believe they may have solved the coffee ring effect where ink is unevenly distributed as it prints. The reason that this is so important is that next generation printed electronics will require highly uniform distribution of crystals in 2D printing. Researchers have created a new family of inks that suppress the coffee ring effect according to a paper in Science Advances. A coffee ring is the pattern left behind when a liquid evaporates and leaves behind the solids that were once dissolved in the liquid. In coffee rings, it's, well, coffee grounds, and in inkjet printing of electronic components, it's crystals. The ring is unevenly distributed with remains because the edges of the ring evaporate faster than the center. Remaining liquids flow outward towards the gap, dragging the solids with it. Mixing in solvents like water or alcohol can help reduce the effect, but the molecules must be very small. Large drops produce more uniform stains. The effect can also be seen in watercolors. The pigment particles in the water tend to move toward the rim of the drop. We know that adding alcohol to the paint can help prevent this effect, or the artist can pre-wet the paper so that the drop will float or move more freely. The shape of the droplet is also important. The effect can be negated with particles that are ellipsoid rather than spherical. The more elongated the drop, the better the deposition will appear, the better the deposition will appear uniform as the elliptical shape prevents the kind of capillary effects that cause spherical drops to distribute more pigment toward the edges of the sphere. And so turning to 2D printing of electronic components, it turns out that once you find the correct alcohol to add to your ink mixture, you can influence the droplet shape and suppress the coffee ring effect. So researchers at the University of Cambridge, Durham University, and Beihang University used 2D crystal flakes of graphene bismuth telluride, tungsten disulfide, boron nitride, and black phosphorus, among other materials. <laughs> the crystals were then dispersed in isopropanol, or IPA alone, uh, as well as isopropanol mixed with ethanol, with T-butanol, and with 
2-butanol in different samples. The team found that the coffee ring effect was not mitigated by the IPA, the IPA with ethanol, or the IPA with T-butanol mixtures, but it was suppressed by the IPA 2-butanol mixture. This allowed them to print the sought-after uniform thickness shapes. They believe that what happens is that the thicker areas of the drop are richer in IPA and therefore have a lower surface tension. Adding 2-butanol to the mix results in a marangoni flow, where liquids tend to flow towards areas of higher surface tension. The effect is sufficient to cause the droplets to spread out like a pancake. The natural form of ink droplets is spherical. However, because of their composition, our ink droplets adopt pancake shapes, said co-author Tafik Hansen of the University of Cambridge. The team has already done a huge amount of proof of concept work. They've printed gas sensors and photodetectors that exceed current industry requirements. They believe with the variety of materials that they can use in their inks, they should be able to, to print a wide range of objects, including more efficient catalysts, solar cells, batteries, and functional coatings. The technique can also print nanoparticles and organic molecules. And it is easily adaptable to industrial scales, which as we will know tonight over and over again, is an important uh, quality of the work being done. The researchers printed 4,500 almost identical copies of the sensors and photoreceptors. Understanding this fundamental behavior of ink droplets has allowed us to find this ideal solution for inkjet printing of all kinds of two-dimensional crystals, said co-author Guo Hua Hu of the University of Cambridge and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Our formulation can be easily scaled up to print new electronic devices on silicon wafers or plastics, and even in spray painting and wearables, already matching or exceeding the manufacturability requirements for printed devices. And of course, that is a big thing that people have been talking about for some time. We haven't quite gotten there yet, but um, wearable uh, electronic devices are something that a lot of people are working on, especially in uh, medicine, because you can basically stick a sticker with a bunch of uh, electronics in on it, embedded in it onto your wrist or another part of your body, and it can actually monitor your health and give statistics back to something that is connected to that, say, your smartphone. And so that is a really exciting and interesting new frontier of electronics. Okay, now this is sort of off topic, but I did actually want to talk about it because we've been following these stories pretty uh, closely here on the show. So we're going to move on to a quick update concerning the Mars Ingenuity Helicopter. So if you recall, this is the companion device to the Perseverance rover, which is on its way to Mars as we speak. 
And so the helicopter doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's basically just a helicopter, a, just a mini copter, but it's a proof of concept. So they want to test out that we can actually use a copter on Mars before they bother building one that actually has any kind of sensors or any kind of useful devices on it. So last Friday, August 7th, Ingenuity received a checkout and recharge of its power system, which is the first time the helicopter has been powered up in the space environment. During the eight-hour-long operation, the NASA team analyzed the six lithium-ion batteries that power the craft and brought their charge up to 35%, which is what they've basically determined is the best for the trip to Mars. They don't want to fully charge them and have them fully charged the whole way there because... Um, as you may know, with your phone or other devices, sometimes if you keep charging the batteries at 100%, it actually sort of uh, paradoxically wears your batteries out. <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, I mean, I do understand it, but um, it is sort of frustrating. It seems very counterintuitive. And so the batteries uh, will be fully, fully charged as the helicopter um, gets to deployment. This was a big milestone as it was our first opportunity to turn on Ingenuity and give it give its electronics a test drive since we launched on July 30th, said Tim Canham, the operations lead for Mars Helicopter at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. Since everything went by the book, we'll perform the same activity about every two weeks to maintain an acceptable state of charge. And so the craft is currently stored on Perseverance's belly and is charged from the rover's power supply. Once it hits the planet, its batteries will be charged by its own solar panels. This charge activity shows that we have survived launch and that so far we can handle the harsh environment of interplanetary space, said Mimi Ong, the Ingenuity Mars Helicopter Project Manager at JPL. We have a lot more first to go before we can attempt the first experimental flight test on another planet, but right now we are all feeling very good about the future. And so the helicopter will have a 30 Martian day or 31 Earth Day test window to prove that future missions can add an aerial component to their repertoire. All right, so we are going to take a break now and do some PSAs and some show promos. And when we come back, we will talk about sustainability in lots of different ways. Okay, so please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so. 
yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to start talking about the environment and how engineering can help make the environment better, because boy, howdy, can we use it. Um, Global warming is real. It is happening. It is definitely um, a problem, but I want to focus on creative solutions that are helping out with it. Um, even though there have been some pretty, uh, striking things that have happened recently, I, just as I was getting ready to start record, I read a story about how the last intact glacier in Canada has just, uh, lost like 40% of its mass. I can't pretend like nothing is happening. Um, and longtime listeners will know that I don't like talking about it because, I find it to be an existential horror, but I think that some of these stories are really great because they are very hopeful about how we can change things for the better. And that's what I'm always trying to talk about is things that are good, things that are interesting, things that are hopeful because there's just so much other stuff in the world right now. And so 
um, one of the other stories that I'm not going to get to tonight, but is also kind of hopeful, is the fact that because we've been doing social distancing, not only have we, at least where we're doing social distancing, let's be perfectly honest, um, places that are doing social distancing have actually had decreases in other communicable diseases because of the precautions for COVID-19. So that's a good thing. Less people are getting sick, uh, from other things besides COVID-19 where people are practicing good uh, social distancing. And so, yeah, that's that's a good thing. <laughs> um, it's brought on by something terrible, but it's still a good thing. So we're going to we're going to focus on the silver linings as much as we can uh, here at Evidence Based Radio. Um, and so let's talk about carbon dioxide for a bit. We all know that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a problem, uh, <laughs> and it is one of the major, major contributors to global warming. And so, of course, part of the problem is that people tend to pretend like it's not happening. Um, and by people, I mean giant corporations, especially those based in and or run by Americans. Let's be perfectly honest. But all hope is not lost. We can still potentially find technological ways to mitigate our carbon dioxide output. One of the ways is to break down the carbon, the carbon dioxide from um, exhaust and from in the air to make useful carbon-based fuels chemicals, and other products. And so in a study published in Nature Communications, Brown University PhD student Taehee Kim and engineering professor Tejas Palmore have described a catalyst which can produce C2 plus compounds, which with up to 72% Faradaic efficiency. And so Faradaic efficiency is the measure of how efficiently energy is used to convert CO2 into various products. So if it's not energy efficient, you're just ending up using energy that's probably also created by potentially a fossil fuel uh, energy plant. So there's no point in trying to sequester CO2 in this way if you're just using so much energy that you're putting in the same or more amount of CO2 back into the atmosphere. That that would be silly. So this is actually far more efficient than other catalysts for C2 plus reactions. And so the researchers also note that their work can be scaled up to an industrial level fairly easily, which makes it a good candidate for large-scale CO2 recycling efforts. There, has been, there have been reports in the literature of all kinds of different treatments for copper that could produce these C2 plus within a range of different efficiencies, said Palmore. What Tehe did was set up a... was was a set of experiments to unravel what each of these treatment steps was actually doing to the catalyst in terms of reactivity, which pointed the way to optimizing a catalyst for these multi-carbon compounds. And so copper catalysts have been developed for making single carbon molecules. According to Palmore, her team at Brown recently developed 
a copper foam catalyst that can produce formic acid efficiently. Formic acid is a commercially viable single carbon chemical, but the researchers note that there is an increasing demand for reactions that can produce C2 plus products, so carbon two carbons rather than single carbons. Ultimately, everyone seeks to increase the number of carbons in the product to the point of producing higher carbon fuels and chemicals, Palmore said. Now, prior work had suggested that the halogenation of copper could increase the catalyst's efficiency at producing C2 plus products. Halogenation involves coating the copper surface with atoms of chlorine, bromine, or iodine in the presence of electricity. Kim experimented with a variety of different methods to find the ones which best with best performance and found that the best formulation could yield Faradaic efficiencies between 70.7 and 72.6, which is again fi- far higher than other copper catalysts. The researchers found that to create a good catalyst, there needed to be a large amount of surface defects, tiny cracks and crevices in the halogenated surface to promote carbon coupling reactions. These defects seemed to be the key to the catalyst's high selectivity toward ethylene, which is a C2 plus product that can be polymerized and used to create plastics. The researchers suggest that this compound is easy to produce, renewable, and able to be scaled to industrial usage. This makes it a good candidate for use in capturing CO2 produced by industrial facilities like power plants, cement manufacturing, or even scrubbing it directly from the air to convert it to usable compounds. We were working with lab-scale catalysts for our experiment, but you could produce a catalyst of virtually any size using the method developed, Palmore said. And while finding ways to sequester CO2 is definitely a good idea, we should also be working on ways to reduce adding it to the atmosphere in the first place. And so an interesting study from the UK looks at how positioning of food can affect people's consumption of either meat or vegetarian-based meals. Meat-heavy diets are detrimental not only to an individual's health, but also to the health of the environment and others, For instance, in the fact that livestock can often be vectors for infectious diseases, such as swine flu. And so, you know, it's it's better if we eat less meat. And of course, clearing land for livestock, grazing is a huge source of carbon pollution, and livestock also contribute to methane pollution and other environmental issues. So there's a lot going on there. Now, to be clear, I'm not personally urging everyone to become a total vegetarian. I eat meat. Um, I think that small-scale, sustainable, and ethical meat production can be environmentally sound and provide people with occasional and quality meat products. And frankly, I even don't only sustain, only source my meat sustainably. I still sometimes buy factory-farmed food, for various reasons, cost, availability, all of these issues that probably you have as well. But I am trying to eat less meat and more vegan meat substitutes. And so um, if you're really committed to meat, vegan chicken products are actually quite 
good. They're, they're getting pretty, pretty good. Um, and manufacturers are getting closer to creating a real burger substitute. Uh, so uh, some of those ones that you've probably heard about. I've had some, I've had most of those and they are actually pretty good. Like it's clearly not an actual beef burger, but some of them are getting real close. Um, and so of course, something that we're not going to talk about tonight either, uh, is that I'd also be willing to eat cloned meat, but that's, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> so all that aside, let's go back to what the researchers actually found. Conservationists at the University of Cambridge wanted to see if they could nudge people towards eating more plant-based foods over meat. The experiment involved two college cafeterias to see if the positioning of food led to greater or lesser consumption. They collected 105,143 meal selections over a two-year period where they alternated the placing of meat and vegetarian dishes first every week and then every month. This was a huge study, a review of previous studies on what is called choice architecture found that there had only been 11,290 observations across all of those various other studies. The researchers found that placing the vegetarian option first did very little to boost adoption in one college, but at the other college, sales of vegetarian dishes rose by 25.2% in the weekly analysis and 39.6% in the monthly analysis. So what was the difference? Writing in the journal Food Nature, the researchers revealed that the second college's setup meant that there was an extra meter of space between the vegetarian and meat options. The first cafeteria had just under three feet between the two stations, 85 centimeters, while the second had just under six feet, 181 centimeters. The cafeterias served 600 and 900 students, respectively. Now, the researchers gathered anonymized data on main meal selections only, so food like sandwiches and salads were not included in the study, but it's still really impressive. The catering staff, but not the students, were made aware of the experiment, which is important uh, because if the students knew, that would basically blow the whole thing out of the water. So interestingly, the researchers had actually assumed that simply placing the veggie options in front of the meal, in front of the meat, would have worked. But it was really only with that spacing that they were able to achieve a measurable effect. And so they tested the space finding by reducing the gap in the, cater in the cafeteria with the larger gap to just over two feet or 67 centimeters, which was even closer than that first one. And the amount of vegetarian food purchased plummeted both on vegetarian first and meat first days. And interestingly, it fell even more on days where the vegetarian options were first, almost 30% compared to meat first days. Reducing meat and dairy consumption is one of the simplest and most impactful choices we can make to prevent the climate, to protect the climate, environment, and other species, said study lead author Emma Garnett, a conservationist from Cambridge's Department of Zoology. We're going to make, we've got to make better choices easier for people. We hope to see these findings used by catering managers and indeed anyone interested in cafeteria and menu design that promotes more climate-friendly diets. 
Previously, work by Garnett and others found that adding an extra vegetarian option cut meat consumption without affecting the amount of income for the food provider. Production of meat, fish, dairy, and eggs are responsible for around 58% of the greenhouse gases that are created by global food production. They take up 83% of farmland, despite contributing only 18% of the world's caloric intake. We think the effect of the meter may be down to the additional effort required to seek out meat. If the first bite is with the eye, then many people seem perfectly happy with an appetizing veggie option when meat is harder to spot, said Garnett. All cafeterias and restaurants have a design that nudges people towards something, so it is sensible to use designs that make the healthiest and most sustainable food options the easiest to pick without thinking about it. We know that information alone is generally not enough to get us to change damaging habits. More researchers more research is needed on how to set up our society so that the self-interested default decision is the best one for the climate. And Garnett's research has actually helped the University of Cambridge, which last year announced a 33% reduction in carbon emissions per kilogram of food purchased and a 28% reduction in land uses. And of course, what she says there is very, very important, which is that we have to make the lazy choice the easiest choice. Um, That is a big issue because... Humans are not good at converting knowledge into action. They just aren't. We are creatures of habit, literally, and if you don't push us towards new habits, we find it very, very hard to sustain them. Okay, in other sustainability news, (laughs) nylon could be the next frontier in a switch to green production. Scientists have developed a sustainable method for making adipic acid, a key component in nylon and thus one of the most valuable chemicals produced on an industrial level. More than two tons of nylon is produced globally with a market value of over $6.5 billion. The fabric is used to make clothes, furnishings, and parachutes. Currently, Adipic acid relies on petroleum and produces a large amount of nitrous oxide, uh, which is, of course, laughing gas. But it is not really a laughing matter. It is a greenhouse gas 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Scientists from the University of Edinburgh have created a version of E. coli, which produces adipic acid in the presence of the naturally occurring chemical guaiacol, which is the main component of a compound that gives plants their structure. Following a 24-hour period, the bacteria had transformed the guaiacol into adipic acid without producing nitrous oxide. The research published in the journal ACS Synthetic Biology, notes that this could be scaled to industrial usage, once again, because that's a huge, important thing that we have to be concerned about. Lead author Jack Souter, a PhD student in the University of Edinburgh's School of Biological Sciences, says, I am really excited by these results. It is the first time 
adipic acid has been made directly from guayacol, which is one of the largest untapped renewable resources on the planet. This could entirely change how nylon is made. And so the lab continues to work on ways that bacteria can help the world, according to Dr. Stephen Wallace, principal investigator of the study and a UK researcher and a UK research and innovation future leaders fellow who notes, if bacteria can be programmed to help make nylon from plant waste, something that cannot be achieved using traditional chemical methods, we must ask ourselves what else could they do and where the limits lie. We are all familiar with the use of microbes to ferment foods and beer. Now we can ferment materials and medicines. The possibility of this approach to creating to create a sustainable future are staggering. So that is pretty exciting. And so yeah, I think that we often are sort of persuaded, I think, sometimes to think that technological solutions, that technology got us here in the first place, so maybe technological solutions won't actually help. But I think that there is a lot of good to be done using technological solutions, because frankly, there is something to be said for the fact that technology got us into this, so technology can probably get us out of it. And obviously, there are ways to do things by yourself. So for instance, eating less meat, uh, less meat, dairy, eggs, things like that, uh, sourcing your meat more responsibly, getting it from local farms rather than from the supermarket, um, and things like that. Of course, in this country, we don't make that easy. We don't make that easy at all because food from um, small farmers is so much harder to get for a lot of people. And the price point is frankly out of reach of a lot of Americans. I struggle to source meat responsibly if I'm trying to eat meat uh, more than very occasionally because it's very expensive. And that's not to say that it shouldn't be expensive because it's showing the real value of what went into it. And uh, as everything in this country, we don't support small farmers the way that we support giant conglomerate farmers. And so I don't uh, begrudge the price point for the meat, but I begrudge the fact that so many Americans can't afford that price point. Um and so hopefully uh, things will eventually get better, but who knows at this point. Um, it has been pretty uh, relentlessly bad for a while, and I keep hoping that it's going to get better. And so all we can do is focus on the things that seem like they're going to help and try and keep ourselves in a hopeful uh, frame of reference because the alternative is not good for anyone. Um, I know that there have been some psychological studies recently about how, uh, especially uh, people in their uh, 20s and 30s are just really, really despairing and have fallen into large bouts of depression. And, you know, who can blame them? Because our world right now is not great and there's no way to sugarcoat that. But I think that it's, it behooves us 
to know that so that we can then try and work on making the world better for future generations, for the generations that are already here and are already suffering. And it's hard to do things yourself, but obviously we can elect officials who are more in keeping with our values. We can give to charity if we possibly can. We can um, volunteer. We can do all sorts of things. Um, right now, obviously, volunteering is a little bit hard, um, but we just have to keep trying to do what we can. And I think that ultimately things will be okay. Ultimately. It's looking pretty bleak right now, but I think that uh, one has to believe that, especially with all these new technological developments, that we will eventually get to a place where we can actually say that technology has fixed this. So for instance, being able to capture carbon would be a huge, huge boon. Um, things like cement that is ubiquitous in our modern lives. Cement is incredibly environmentally damaging. I know it doesn't sound like it would be to create something that's basically sand and water, but cement manufacture is actually really environmentally damaging. It, release, it releases tons of CO2. Um, and so things like concrete and um, things like that and cement are just really bad for the environment in a lot of ways that we don't think about in everyday life. Um, and so we just have to keep working towards... Um, trying to fund this kind of research. So, you know, if you can make a donation to a research university, that can also be helpful. Um, and if you can't do anything at all, you can just share stories with people um, and hope that maybe some of them can help out. And also we need to be very clear about, especially as we are coming into the home stretch of uh, the election season, we need to really be working on electing better officials, uh, electing people who are more committed to the environment, because frankly, there are very few people in the uh, government at the moment who really seem to be taking this seriously. And I know that some people are and some people are, you know, being thwarted by people who are not interested. Um, but this is a real crisis. And yes, there can be technological solutions, but we need to be supporting those technological solutions instead of just putting our fingers in our ears and saying, la, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. And so um, this is my soapbox for the evening. I hope you don't mind me uh, going on about this a bit tonight as we wrap up, because I think it's a really important conversation to have that we really need to do something. I know that a lot of us have been really, really focused on COVID and just trying to remember to wear a mask and wash our hands and not go out as much. But of course, that means that a lot more of us are using home um, home air conditioners and home lights, wherein we would have obviously been doing that in offices and things like that more, where we would have had a little bit better of an ability to um, distribute that 
um, that load of energy. And so, for instance, if I'm at work, my workplace has pretty sustain, pretty sustainable energy sources that it's working with. Um, but here at home, it's a little bit less, uh, you know, you try and get the sort of renewable energy, but um, it's, it's hard to do it at home in a way that it isn't as hard to do at the workplace. Um, in some respects, because some places probably are just using the regular grid, um, but some places are definitely, and also you're just using a different kinds of lights. You're using fluorescents and things like that, which have a lower um, energy usage. So unfortunately, we are doing a little bit more than we would normally do on that front, even though we're not doing other activities that contribute to um, the global climate crisis. At least, you know, those of us who are actually doing it, because as we know, lots of people aren't. I see lots of people driving around. I see lots of people um, in videos doing things that I am just shocked and bewildered that they're doing in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but we can only do what we can do, and that is to try and uh, do the best that we can in our um, hearts and in our actions. And so I think it's going to be okay. Ultimately, I am a pessimist through and through. So for me to say this, it's part of the reason why this um, show is so bouncy and light most of the time is because I'm trying to keep up my own inner pe pessimism or keep my inner pessimism at bay. And so I hope that you appreciate um, that this is a more upbeat show um, and really tries to show that science does have solutions for things and can help. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Please do come back next week. Okay, goodbye. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.